You're listening to Other Day Podcast with me, Jodie Muta Hamilton, the founder of Other Day. I'm delighted to welcome you to the first of our two very special podcast episodes, which accompanies our Defining Success Report. For this first podcast, we tackle a tricky subject for creatives, money. In search of expert guidance around what makes a creative venture attractive to financial investors and how we should plan for our own personal financial future, I speak to three incredible women for this podcast. Mahedrabeen Patrick, Chief Financial and Investment Officer at Creative England and Creative Industries Federation. Anna Sofat, Associate Director of Wealth at Progeny, and Lottie Lee, Founder and Director of Jura Private and the Jura Society. Each of these women have carved a path that is individual to them, but also one that supports others to gain an understanding of the many different ways in which we can create a more financially secure future for ourselves, our businesses and future generations. As creatives, we tend to leave money matters at the bottom of the to-do list. Maybe that's because creativity comes first and financial reward second. Or perhaps it's because throughout our lives we've not been taught how to manage our personal and business finances. However, we have the ability to gain knowledge and meet money matters head on. After all, as the saying goes, if you fail to plan, plan to fail. the first part of this podcast, I'm very happy to welcome Mahedrabeen Patrick, Chief Financial and Investment Officer at Creative England and Creative Industries Federation. Mahedra will help us to understand how Creative England and Creative Industries Federation come together to support creativity and creative businesses within the UK. She'll also help us to understand what makes a creative venture attractive to investors. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I just wanted to get a bit more oversight over what the Creative Industries Federation do and also what Creative England does and why they came together. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you uh, very much, Jodie, for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, Creative England and Creative Industries Federation came together back in September. So if I just very quickly explain what the two organizations do separately, um, it will make sense why they came together. And, and then I'll sort of uh, talk you through the reasons um, why they came together and what is really their vision going forward. Um, Creative England has been going around for a long time now. We came together uh, in 2010 from few regional existing organizations uh, to form Creative England. It is a national organization organization that um, raises private and public funds to support um, creative sector generally. And, and our support can be in form of investment, which is a very important sort of uh, product uh, and uh, that we offer the creative sector. And that investment can be loans, equity investment, revenue share investment, or any other sort of flexible instrument we can help the creative sector with, we will deploy. We also do a lot of work with creative businesses in getting them investment ready because they, we feel there's a big gap between the perception of creative sector in the investment community as well as what how creative businesses are approaching investment community. So we try and educate both sides. So that's a big piece of work we do. And uh, within Creative England, we also run a lot of support programs, business support programs across the country in helping uh, businesses scale, connect them with the ecosystem they require to grow and really provide them guidance, advice, links, contacts, profile, um, all of that. 
Creative Industries Federation, which has been going on for five years, um, is, uh, is a mem- essentially a membership organization, but has a big uh, policy and advocacy part to its work where it speaks for the for the whole sector. It um, represents the whole sector and through its membership base, which is very sort of wide across the whole of the sector, it uh, advocates the, the right sort of policies and um, and uh, sort of, you know, uh, plans for the creative sector. So so Creative Industries Federation has been going on, as I said, for five years and really um, is is sort of across the whole of the sector and its membership represents the whole of the sector. And its voice has been quite strong in terms of its policy and advocacy work. Uh, Back in September, when the two uh, managements and two boards started talking, it was very evident that the work that Creative Industries Federation does is very sort of strong on policy advocacy and the mandate from the creative sector and very um, diverse in terms of within the creative sector. And whereas the work that Creative England does, which is very much on the ground, um, uh, practical advice, practical support, uh, investment, um, sort of links, contacts, all of that is very much sort of talking the talk, which Creative um, Industries Federation does. So one is policy, one is practice. And that really was very evident to us that coming together, we can do more if we stay apart um, and and carry on doing what we are doing. So we sort of had the conversation for a couple of months and very quickly both the boards uh, came to the conclusion that coming together will be really good. We can serve the sector much better because we can join the policy work with the practice. We can we can work with the sector and with the government, both national and regional level, in sort of coming up with the right sort of policies and solution. And with Creative England, we can implement some of those solutions. We can actually start programs and whether it's investment programs, whether it's business support programs in the regions that can really put that policy into practice. So that's why we came together. Mm-hmm. And um, at the moment we are working you know, jointly, at, it's, it's one organization, under one umbrella organization and we are going through that journey of um, hopefully bringing the brands together in, uh, in, in next, next year as well. Yeah, I mean, how you've laid it out there makes complete sense. It's kind of all the elements coming together into a more holistic place where you can actually action and use finance to do some other things and and move things around. Um, You touched on something around um, creatives and kind of finance and and getting creatives ready and, and other people not understanding creativity and that sort of push and pull between... I guess, yeah, creativity and finance. Could you just um, kind of highlight that a little bit more for me and and sort of why do you think there is that push and pull tension between the two? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, we, as I said earlier, we've been uh, really for a very long time advocating the importance of the creative sector and actually advocating the opportunities within the creative sector and the uh, and the contribution it is making to the to the economy. You know, uh, we, within our sector, we're very familiar with the contribution it is making uh, to the overall economy. We are one of the more, uh, fastest growing sector. Uh, you know, last year we contributed over 100 billion to the economy and the growth rate has been exceptional. Um, but the all that uh, sort of value it has, um, it sometimes gets lost when we talk to journal sort of investment community. Um, and the sector, even though it's been very, very successful, hasn't had as much success in attracting 
outside finance and attracting private finance. And the the main reason, uh, there are quite a few reasons for that, and there are a couple of reasons that really uh, sort of are, are, are quite key from, from what I have seen and our own work that has uh, uncovered is um, is sort of lack of understanding, as you said. I'll, I'll give you the reasons why that lack of understanding is there. Creative sector is, is made up of, uh, lots of lo- small businesses. It is uh, a sector which is quite fragmented, one can say. There are games businesses, there are fashion businesses, there are architecture businesses, there are TV and film businesses. And in, within their own right, those subsectors are quite important, quite, you know, have their own financial models and, and, a, and a little bit diverse. And that fragmentation means that to outside investor community, we all look as uh, as some sort of uh, you know lots of various uh, businesses and lots of various um, subsectors who are perhaps not that easy for them to understand so the tech sector is fragmented it has not perhaps represented itself as a um, as a sort of a one joint opportunity to the investor community as it should i mean a lot of work is being done from across the board not just our organization others are doing but a lot more has to be done to really make the case for the uh, the opportunity in this space and and back that case by real life case studies and examples. There aren't big names, uh, big role models as there are in other sectors to, to attract that investor community and say, this is what happens. And this is how the success um, can be sort of distributed to the investor. So there's a lot more data on the success of the creative sector, a lot more case studies and role models that we, we as a sector have to push forward and present to the investor community. Um, on the investor community side, I think there is a big um, perception of risk for creative sector. The the creative sector is seen as a hit business, you know, to large extent that it, it is a hit business. It is a business uh, based on creativity and ideas, and it is a business based on people. It is not a not a business that is based on brick and mortars or a um, lot of sort of, you know, widgets or factories or anything like that. Its base is all in ideas and in people that run this sector. So there is this myth within the investor community that it's a hard sector to understand. It is a risky sector to get into and it is hit based. And that perception is actually factually wrong we have uh, and that that's the point that comes back to the data we have seen from what data we had that actually creative businesses are not any more risky they are they are in some cases less risky than other businesses so it's it's making that case very clearly and backing it with data and and really breaking that myth that exists in the investor community that creative sector is risky um, so th- those, I, I think, are, are two key things. Mm. And, and also, I think, um, as I said, it's uh, some time in creative sector, and this is, this is something we as businesses, as creative businesses, has to do, is really make shine a light on the scalability of, of these businesses. Generally, investors are becoming a lot more comfortable with tech, for example, and with, with digital, for example, the things they can sort of see examples of um, of growth. Whereas the scalability story within creative sector perhaps is not being sort of you know told as well. So really showing the scale. And that scale is there. We have seen such 
amazing success within creative sector. We, you know, you you are very aware. Uh, hopefully, your readers and listeners would would also be all all big franchises and uh, the inward investment that creative sector has brought to UK is all very evident. So we really need to make uh, make that very clear. And, and, and you know, the, the journal sort of uh, comfortable place for investors is, you know, they are, even though they take risk, they are still looking for um, trends. You know, they're looking for trends that um, sort of reinforces their desire to um, um, generate revenue. They're looking for precedents and they're looking for proven market. And we as a sector have to show all that to the investors. So investors, you know, need to take more risks with the sector. And we as a sector have to have to show that they, our opportunity is greater than what it looks like. I think that that's sort of mm-hmm. where I, I take it. I think it's interesting to think about what creativity is and kind of draw it back from something that is maybe a product and it's more a mindset and the way that you approach things. And we know that, um, you know, for example, surgeons use sewing skills and they are creative, you know, so it's kind of like create my belief is anyway that creativity is within all of us, you know, that we can be creative even in a police job perhaps you know so it's kind of perhaps breaking those barriers down a little bit there as well and you know we were in a pandemic and kind of we're all reassessing what we perhaps need to do and where we need to go and um you know maybe we've talked a little bit about scale there as well so particularly in fashion at the minute we're trying to reassess what business models look like so that they um don't harm the planet basically so it's not a growth model it's something else maybe it's a service or experience model um and obviously investors want growth so how do we start to to look at those dynamics as well so we can scale creativity but perhaps not in a way that um is quite typical i think we need to do next you know absolutely <laughs> you're absolutely right i think there's as i said you know all the all the the, the you know uh, top line figures show that there's there's opportunity in creative sector. You know there's money to be made. You know we're talking about finance and investment, and we can't move away from the fact, as you just mentioned, that investors want growth, they want return, and rightly so. So there's absolutely opportunity to make money in this sector. I think you're absolutely right. We need to come up with a with a mechanism or or a formula or a, or a way of looking at it that it is it is not just seen as growth for the sake of growth. And scale for the sake of scale. I think within creative sector, um, as this pandemic has shown, that you know innovation and doing things differently and pivoting is something we do very well. You know, creative sector has done it very well. We are very quickly, you know, just taking example of um, let's say production sector. We very quickly over the last few months have have moved um, you know the physical production to virtual production, and and you know you can see there's opportunity in that space investors if they you know if they, if they can find that and the same in fashion you know it's not just about sort of physical fashion there could be other models so i i think we really need to as investors um, and and as a sector we really need to promote the uh, the value of patient long-term success in this space so patient capital is something you you and your listeners might, must have come would have come across is that it's not about you know two-year horizon or five-year horizon. It is about a long-term success 
and and really investing in in that business with the with the aim that you know the success won't just necessarily come in form of money in two or three years it it could come in form of other measures that 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 investor can sort of you know hang on to but also the success could could be on a slightly mm-hmm. longer horizon and and that that is becoming a little bit more sort of um, you know um, recognized um, the the whole patient capital concept is getting a bit more recognition um, and and as long as sort of the businesses can offer that tiered uh, return back to investors whether it's form of um, you know uh, immediate um, financial return or or sort of you know the other values that the the business can. Um, pass on to society, whether it is, as you said, um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, sustainability or or contribution to pivoting and contribution to coming up with new ways of looking at the world. And, and I, I think, you know, one of the things I was thinking around creativity and its value, I think its value is in and really being able to break the mold and think of things differently. And that is that is an attractive part for, uh, you know, that a creative business can offer. It, it offers that to the investor and to the, to the economy generally. It can look at things differently and it can do it quickly because it is mm-hmm. based on people and ideas. It is not big factories uh, that take years to think of a different way of producing something. It can pivot quickly and that is a great value for the economy and for the for the investors i think and, and definitely something we need right now isn't it as well um how why do you think that fashion particularly is not always um sort of seen as a creative arts or it isn't as valued in the same sense artistically as ballet for example or yeah film you know why do you think from your perspective that happens um, that's a really good question, and I think I, I I will only sort of be able to cover from where I sit. I think there is a lot more to this uh, question that that you know others can add to. But I think um, I, I I think I mean this might sound a bit controversial, but I think fashion has been a domain of um, for a wrongly uh, female women sort of place, and and I guess. Um, for a long time, it has not been seen as a serious business and a serious sort of sector, which is totally, totally wrong. Um, and and I think you know it is it is not seen as a, a way of expressing art or a way of expressing design. It is seen as um, <laughs> something that women indulge in. If you you know, I, I, this could be as I said, this could be very controversial, but it, basically. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. It is seen in something that women indulge in, and it, perhaps its contribution to expression has not, you know, come out as well. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that both sides have to sort of grapple with. I think fashion businesses themselves and the fashion community themselves have to, you know, do more to really communicate its value to art and its value to to sort of culture and heritage as well. You know, there's a lot of value of uh, fashion, uh, its contribution to our long-term heritage. And none of that has been done in, in the way it should be. Um, a bit more effort has been made. So I, I think it's, 
it's yeah it's seen as something that women indulge in and not something that is uh, contributing to the, to the cultural expression and that's what i think is the cause and it's, it's changing kind of, a bit you know. it's kind of crazy though when you think about it you know we make as an industry double what the film industry does so why you know financially are not people not listening to this story and also you know think about the amount of people that it employs in retail, um, in factories in the UK, you know, it's immense when you look at all the different ways that it kind of trickles down. And then also think about, um, you know, the the thought leaders in the space and what's happening there and things that are changing. And um, one thing that I always think about is like, I haven't actually done this piece of work yet, but I'd love to try and look at um, how many CEOs are in LVMH or whatever and, and where those top roles are that the men are that are getting paid more than, you know, all the women. And it becomes a business um, that men are interested in when they're in that top position getting paid the money. So they are interested at that level but not as an industry. It's kind of quite strange. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a strange dilemma. It is. It is strange. Dilemma. And, and I mean, I would really love to, you know, do more work on it and actually, you know, hear from people like yourself who are more embedded in the sector as to what can change and how it should change. We are really interested in bringing fashion into the sort of the work we're doing. And within Creative England, we were more focused on screen-based sectors, but within Creative Industries Federation, we are focused on across you know across the whole spectrum and i'm really keen to bring more fashion businesses into our creative england side of work and really understand how we can help them and and how they can sort of be a voice alongside games and film and you know everything else that shouts loud and perhaps we need to shout shout a lot louder when it comes to businesses yeah, be, be be less outsider and more in the centre, I think we need to do. I think maybe it's, you know, that as you touched on, perhaps women don't do that as much as well. So it's kind of how can we encourage that as well to be, um, you know, a friend of mine, I say, oh, yeah, it's a boasty moment. Well, actually, that's quite good, you know, to be able to boast about things sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I was just wondering from your point of view, what determines something that is a successful um, creative venture? So there's many elements that I'm sure you think of that come together, not just with finance, but what is a successful creative output or venture or business? Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I you know, really um, answer that from my perspective, from where we sit. I sit, um, you know, as, as sort of, you know, chair of the investment committee, and I look at a lot of businesses uh, who come through, uh, you know, through our process, um, and and having looked at so many businesses, there are certain things that are you know that stand out and that we look for. So I, I answered that from that perspective. <clears throat> I think, you know, uh, pursuing a creative path is really hard. We all know that it is. It is a really hard um, hard graft, and turning a creative idea into a, a successful business is even harder. Um, so the so for me, the most important thing. I look for in a in a winning creative venture, if if we can call it that, um, is really the the person or the team behind uh, behind that idea. And I mean, it might be that you know we use this word, oh, I will invest in people and not in ideas, has been used a lot, and it's been it's become a bit of a cliche. But actually, it is 
so true in this sector than it is in any other sector. We absolutely are backing the the ideas and the person behind that idea because our business is based on on ideas. So it is the person and the team behind that idea. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit more because <clears throat> it's not you know just saying a person and they are you know whether they're good or bad. It is what I am looking for. For a, for a creative venture, which I think will be successful, whether, you know, in, in the way they are, they are, the path they're going down now or a, or a pivoted path, doesn't matter. Is What I'm looking for is the passion behind that person and really why are they doing what they are doing. So this is one component of, of the other things I'll, I'll um, touch on as well. So it's the person or the team behind that idea and why they are doing what they're doing, not just how... Uh, they're doing what they're doing why if we take time as an investor or as someone who's supporting a creative center and really understanding why this person is pursuing this particular idea whether because he's really talented in that particular idea or because he's really got a strong passion and he will he will get the expertise he needs is really important and if we take time to understand that then that really gives us a really good uh, sense of the passion behind the vision they have and then how that passion will lead them to a how that will help. You know, as uh, as we, you know, we're aware of this phrase, uh, the, the, and I think it was um, done by the famous or infamous um, uh, Apple uh, creator, is that the difference between, you know, good idea and the bad idea is execution. And that execution in our sector comes from the person that is behind that idea, not from the factory or the process or the or the or the patent. It comes from from people. So that's really important for me. The other thing is the vision. I think um, uh, we there's another quote that comes to mind. Um, he says, um, David Bowie said, "said tomorrow belongs to those who can see it coming," and I think. The vision that creative sector or the creative people have is so important. And it is, it is you know, you see a lot of things on, on creative screens, for example, that haven't even come to fruition yet, but we have already thought about it. So the the vision of the team and the, and the, and the people behind that creative venture is really important for me. And for them to really think outside the box um, is really important. And then the, the third thing is... Um, so, so that that team or that person has either themselves or someone around them who has the business acumen. I think a lot of the time, again, you know, you would have heard that uh, the creative idea is brilliant, but it is nothing if you can't really execute it properly. And and it's really important for a successful creative venture to have both the creativity, the passion. Um, and and the sort of you know power to generate new ideas with someone who can implement those ideas and has the business mind behind it that's really important and then on more operational level really I think a creative venture is uh, is as I said something that is that is not necessarily creating new IP but is dealing with you know real passion and real real sort of vision uh, that you know that can can use the cliche change the world but can that can bring uh, you know either satisfaction entertainment or, or innovation to the world 
Um, and operationally behind that, what is important is, of course, in these days, you know, making sure the digital side of the business, the tech side of the business is, is there. And that, that will really contribute to the success of a, of a good creative venture. The, the scalability, if possible, is there. And, and you know, the scalability doesn't necessarily mean, you know, growing to a, to a billion dollar company. It means being able to, you know, use your idea to generate um, a momentum in the business to use your ideas to replicate them. So you you know you create a successful fashion design one day. You you embed that creativity in your business process so you can create another successful uh, fashion design the next day or the next month. Same with you know film and television. It's you you don't need to start again to write a successful play. You can sort of embed those processes and those scalability in your business that can allow you to not go back to zero every time. And that's what I look at uh, for in a business. And then discipline, uh, really, and adoptability, you know, work at it, fail or succeed, but try again. So adopt, you know, I really look at businesses and creative ventures who I, I have seen uh, have really, you know, um, have, you know, have ridden the wave of successes who are happy to adopt and, and really go, Along with the time, creativity is reflection of our time, our future. And if we, if as creative business, we're stuck in past, we can't be successful. We have to represent the future. And that's what I see in a successful creative venture. So there's definitely some sort of um, things that you're saying about frameworks and replication, but then also having the ability to be fluid throughout that as well. It's kind of a, a quite a unique combination of yeah structure and and fluidity. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Is there is there anything else you want to talk about, particularly that you'd um, like to get across? Yeah, I think I think just sort of talking of creative people and creative businesses. I think you know. Um, it's it's we we were before the before we started this we're talking about uh, the importance of creative careers and creative practitioners and creative entrepreneurs and i think it's you know it's never enough to you know um it's never too much to say that how important creative people are to this sector and to this economy and and actually reinforcing uh, whether we are in a pandemic or not whether we are you know, riding the uh, the wave of growth, or we are at the stage we are. Um, creativity and creative endeavor will take us out of it, and this is really important that 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 is sort of really reinforced um, anywhere we go. It's not creativity is not a luxury, and and you know we are in we are in the times when there's a there's a risk that creativity is seen as luxury. Um, it is crucial to uh, our human endeavor and it's really important that we uh, really um, nurture it and and really bring it to the forefront and support it in as many ways as we can and not sort of let it slide in these very very important and, uh, and, and challenging times really. In the second part of this podcast, I speak to Anna Sofat, who is the pioneering founder of Adidi and now Associate Director of Wealth at Progeny. Often referred to as the voice of women's wealth, Anna Sofat has been helping women invest their money for decades. Anna has changed the culture of wealth by empowering women through advice and investments. I talked to Anna about how to find your financial number, 
a number which creates a comfort point between where what you need and what you want is sufficient. One of the one of the things that kind of I remember when we had a, a really nice breakfast meeting um, event with you, Anna, was um, you said something that's just really stuck in my mind, which was about name your number, and it, it wasn't around know your worth because in a way that's something quite different. That's emotional driven, and it's um, kind of leads you into lots of different discussions around worth. Okay, so. That's, you know, that's a, that's a sticky one. But um, Know Your Number was something very clear to me. And it, it was very obvious when you laid it out in the sense of what do you need to get you where you want to be in a financial sense? And I think that clarity of focus just really struck me. And it's something that I've gone away and worked on myself <laughs> since we met. Um, but what does that mean to you? What is your number? You know, what's this about? Could you just explain that? Right. So we all have, um, we all have, I suppose, needs. And within, you know, you've got those uh, hierarchy of, of need, if you like, Maslow's hierarchy of need. But within that, what I've, I've come to realize with clients is that we all have, if you like, a comfort point. Okay effectively and that comfort point is is uh, so if you've got your basic house shelter food all of those things but this this is point where what you what you need and want in life is sufficient beyond that accumulating more wealth is not going to add very much but we need to know what that number is we need to know what what works for us or what don't, for example. And it, it is sort of knowing that number. So for some people, I have clients who live in very, very comfortably on a 1,000 a month or 1,500 a month, quite, you know, what you would say basic life, but they are incredibly comfortable and content in themselves. Got others who may be 10,000 a month, and that's their comfort point. So it's knowing for yourself that what do you need in life to be at that point where beyond that additional money may come in useful, but it's not going to add as much. Below that, it's you've got to be motivated by money to get there. And if you know that number, then you know you are motivated to get there. So that may be to say, okay, actually my number right now, this isn't about sort of future planning is right now I'm living on 5,000 a month but off that a thousand a month is to do with children so once they're grown up obviously that will go out another thousand maybe mortgage so at some point that will be paid off because that's what I'm planning to do so I'm down to 3,000 now how much of that how does that roughly go so how much of that is my basic bills because they'll always be around and how much then is sort of day-to-day lifestyle or nice to have. So once you break those numbers down into those three elements, you know, if you like, when you are financially free, mortgage is paid off, children are grown up, when it's just you um, to look after, what that number you you might be targeting for, okay? And then it's a matter of then converting that into some sort of lump sum to get, I need an asset base of this. 
So it's it's just calculating those, in my view, is a starting point because then you know where you're heading. So, you know, then you know if you've got 100,000 in your pension and you've worked out you need 300,000, you know what the gap is. Um, so for me, everybody really, we all want to be financially free, all of us, right? And few of us have enough enough assets day one to be in that financial free space. So what we need to work out is, okay, what's my number when I am financially free, that I am at that comfort point? And so I can then start to build towards that. And for different people, it'll be different, you know, for a lot of um, uh, women, as you say, the setting up their businesses, absolutely, you know, there'll be a value in that. But at the same time, you know, you might want a slightly diversified strategy to get to that goal. Yeah, so something that you picked up then was around um, freedom and flexibility. And I think that that's, you know, ultimately what we're all trying to achieve, isn't it? That you're not sat at your desk 100 hours a day, you know, and, and kind of, yeah, so it's that's why we're looking at kind of what enables you to do that. And that's obviously money and kind of time and space and, and all those sorts of things. And actually, you know, creative entrepreneurs are pretty bad at looking at money. <laughs> um, we focus on things that make us happy, which is actually the creative process and creativity generally. And when I talk to a lot of people, they, you know, I say, have you thought about a pension? Or have you thought about um, how you could change things around to sort of give you a bit more freedom? And particularly at the minute, you know, we're all looking at little pots or where we can find things or how we can get a new client in or, you know, create some sort of stability. And the thing that people come to me and say is, oh, I haven't even had a chance to look at that or I haven't even thought about that yet. So for people who are, are starting to think they need to look at money in, a, in relation to future, um, what would you advise them to do? Like what would be a best sort of thing to, to look at a pension? I mean, are they still valid now? <laughs> or, you know, I don't even know, you know, that sense. Okay. Um, the way I would look at it is basically start and say, look, I think living in the presence and that freedom and the flexibility and the creative of being happy is incredibly important, incredibly important, okay? And you want to, I, I sort of always say, look, you want to live in the present, mindful of where you've come from and with a, a plan, if you like, for tomorrow, but no more than that, right? And that plan for tomorrow effectively is acknowledging, okay, I don't know how long I have here. So in that sense, living in today and enjoying and being happy is really important. Okay? Having said that, if I go uh, uh, on a, an average life, if you like, I'm going to live to, I think the average for a 65-year-old woman is something like 93, 94. Okay? So, I'm going to live, maybe not 200, but a good 90. Now, at some point, whether I want to or not, I will physically slow down. Right? And I see that in clients. Uh, and we are, you know, getting healthier. And so that number is being pushed back. So it used to be probably nearer to 60, 65. You would see the change might be 65 to 70. It all varies because not all of us are in, in good health, if you like. 
But there comes a point you've lived at least half of your life, if not more, by the time you're 50. Mm. So there will come a time, whether you want to or not, where you will physically slow down as well as mentally. And whether you want to or not, you will not be able to continue to earn to provide for yourself. So you're going to have, have to save for the, that last one third of your life, if you like. Okay. Unless you want to rely on the state. And the state pension right now is about 9000 a year. Okay. That's it. So unless you feel by then you've got a rent-free property you can live in and you can live on about £800 a month, you're going to have to make that up. Okay. So you then sort of come back to what do I need to do for that? And the sooner you start and look at, if you like, what you're bringing in, look at your income right now, then start to allocate a percentage of that to your future, day one. Yeah. So start with maybe 5%. Then it may need to go to 10%. If you don't do that, you almost double what you need to save every decade. So if you haven't saved in your 20s, right, you're going to need to start somewhere between 10 20% already. By the time you get to your 40, you're going to be 20 to 40% of your earnings going to have to go to that savings pot because you haven't had the, the opportunity to grow that money. Okay? So start saving. If you're employed by anybody and treat yourself as an employee, you go into auto-enrollment for pension savings. Okay? And I think at the moment... Um, the employers are supposed to do 3% if you match 5%. So that's 8%. That's a good place to start day one, okay, in your 20s. Put that aside into a pension. And the reason is pensions are definitely still incredibly relevant and incredibly tax efficient is because you can put all of that 8% without paying any tax on it at all, okay? And then it grows without any tax, capital gains or income tax in that pension. And at some point when you're 55, 57, you can take it out and you can use that to provide an income stream for yourself. At that point, you'll pay tax on 75% of it, but you haven't paid anything now and you've had the growth. So get the help. And the other thing I have forgotten, actually, because when you put that money in, and if it's a personal contribution, then the government tops it by 20%. If it comes out of net pay, if it comes out of gross pay, obviously you don't pay any tax, and so it goes gross. Okay, So basically you're putting one pound of that one pound earning straight into that pension effectively. And if you pay tax on it, then you get that back effectively. So start from day one. Okay. that's your long-term saving. And if you don't do the three building blocks for me, so there's that long-term saving from day one. Okay. Women's pensions are less than men's, and it's because we start later, then we have breaks with families. And so by the time we're in our mid-50s, we're not as well-placed for our future as and men are. Men automatically will save into that because if they go to work, they will think about it and they will do it. Mm -hmm. okay. We keep delaying it. So what I would say 
to every single person, particularly creative. I'm so glad you're in that present mode and in that sort of being happy, flexible mode. But just sort of twice a year, sit down and basically simple as saying, right, if this is my earning, I need to allocate, say, that 8 10% if you're in your 20s to my future pension. I need an emergency fund, one to three months worth of your outgoings for a rainy day, so you have that buffer. And in between, you might want some insurances for the what-if scenarios. What if, you know, I fall ill? What if I die where my family will be? Does, that's it. You just need those three building blocks. And then if you, you've got enough income and you've got headspace, you can save for a, a nice, what sort of nice middle goal, if you like, into an ISA. That's all you need, pension, an ISA for the middle one, some life insurance, a rainy day. That's it. Amazing. <laughs> um, definitely some building building blocks there to consider. Um, something that you, you touched on just there, and also actually your key driver to starting a DD Wealth was um, women within the within the you know complex nature of financial management and planning and so forth. Can you just explain a little bit more about why you felt the need to to create a DD Wealth and also now where it's gone and, and kind of through its acquirement? Yeah. So the first time I suppose I felt at home in financial services was when I joined a business um, which was set up for women by women. And the reason I felt at home there was I suppose how we did business and the culture within it, which was incredibly collaborative, incredibly client-centric. And it was just that simple. And probably for the first time, I had a light bulb moment saying, actually, you can do business in a way that sits with your core values and you can make money and it can be a sustainable business. Clients like it, you like it, the people working within it like it. And so that business was very much about helping women become financially independent. And, and the founder was looking for an exit. We got there, basically. She brought me in as her exit plan. So we sold the business um, to give her the exit she needed. And then I was back at square one in the sense I went for a big corporate because it was bought by a, a bigger company. And it was just, it, I wasn't happy there at all because everything I liked uh, about how that business operated and the, the women focus was all lost. I then uh, founded a DD, and part of it focusing on women was to say, okay, most women, you know, this was in 2006, 2008, are already financially independent. We're all going out to work and earnings. So if we want independence, it's there. But where are we now in our journey, particularly to do with money? And what I, at that point in time, what I was seeing a lot of women was sort of juggling work, juggling home life, juggling, and within that, a great deal of guilt because they could be 120% at everything. And often the two things that gave was time for themselves or their money. And particularly the more they earned, the less they sort of sometimes the imperative there was to look after it, or because they're so busy even when there wasn't that much it still was hard to get around to and I thought okay all I know is about money that's one thing I can take off their to-do list and their, their desk so I wanted I wanted to create a 
a financial home for them where they could delegate as much or as little to do with their money and then create sort of long-term relationships where we could be their trusted advisor. That's basically was the DD. We've now gone into Protone Wealth, and Protone basically is looking at developing the next generation financial services business, not specifically for women, although I think we will develop something um, that is that meets women's needs. Okay, so in a way, I think twelve years on, as women, we know we can't be hundred percent at everything. We can't be, you know, super women. We're not. And we can't do everything, so we are going to have to prioritize things in our life to be able to provide attention. We still want a trusted advisor, and Protonet will still provide that. But I think the need is changing, and I'm in a place, I think, at the moment, looking and saying, well, what is, if you like, if there was a women-focused financial services business now, what does it need to be to meet women's current needs or future needs and I haven't quite um, I don't feel I've got a hundred percent sort of clarity in my head as to what that needs to be effectively so that's basically where where we are at the moment what you are getting I think you're getting a a lot of women uh, quite a few women setting up women-focused businesses which is great to cater for women because Many women do like talking to a female financial advisor, as do many men, actually, because we tend to be a little bit more trusting and less sales focused. Um, there are many women setting up financial coaching businesses, which are not regulated. Um, all of that, I think, is good because I think we do need a lot more choice out there in the marketplace. I'm a little bit concerned about you also beginning to get a lot of influences around money now um and and i have i think mixed feelings about that in terms of where the responsibility of things go wrong lies obviously with the regulated businesses you know you, you there'll be a liability there when you have somebody to fall back on within the business within the industry if for whatever reason you know you receive bad advice in financial coaching in in influencer space particularly, I think it's buyer be aware. And that's what I would really, really say. There is a whole different themes out there in terms of how you could grow your wealth and your money from sort of, you know, all you have to do is be in the right space, mindset, and, uh, you know, be in the abundance spirit, if you like, and it'll come to you. It almost as if you are preventing it coming to you. There is a hell of a lot of thinking in that space. And a lot of it I do agree with, but you have to be open to opportunities for things to come to you. Um, But at the same time, no matter how much you wish you want to be a millionaire, it's not going to happen by itself. You're going to have to work at it somehow or the other. Now, sometimes for some of us, that's a really easy journey. For others, it's a lot harder. Um, So, you know... um, what you can do is have a plan, nice, steady, almost boring plan, which will get you to where you want to be eventually. Yeah, the, the logic behind it, basically, and, and planning for that. Um, you picked up something about um, purpose-driven and kind of like 
purpose-driven, but also I think women are very much about putting themselves into something that they feel really valuable and, and looking at a bigger picture and whether that's community-led or sustainability-led and, and things like this. And um, I think we've talked about it before previously about wanting to invest in things that are sustainable or more driven around purpose. Have you been seeing that a lot more frequently now with the, the people that you work with and you have your kind of investment circle as well, don't you? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of research around money and women that basically confirmed that um, women think about money in a different way to men, that um, there is... They, they want to feel good about their money. They want in terms of how they use it in their own lives. Um, and they, they look for beyond financial returns, I think. I think what hasn't been vocalized here, I look at return in terms of sort of financial return, which are fairly simple and much of the financial services industry is focused on giving you those. Um, personal return, what are you personally getting out of sort of your money? And social return in terms of what you do, and you know, I, I I just feel the money is just just really good to be good to yourselves because you need to be happy and healthy uh, before you are sort of good to others. So you know, be good to yourself and compassionate to others. But I don't think you can go much wrong if you if you have those simple values. With my clients, many of them, we've always had a beyond money relationships in many ways okay some are more motivated by the getting to their number uh, because I think we all like that that number basically and for some that is a big number for some it's a small number um, but many of them are, are uh, proactively now investing in more sustainable funds if you like the more ESG sort of socially responsible investments um, all conversations. So roughly, if you look at the investment world, there's three styles of investing. There is uh, what you call the passive uh, index tracking. So you just invest in certain markets or certain, so if you can invest in a UK index or a US index or a, or a European index or a world index, the whole of the world stock market. And you're just going to follow it up and down and you're going to get the returns from that, that marketplace, less the charges. So Low cost, you know what you're going to get, but might be a bumpy ride. Okay. At the other end, you've got managers who are trying to outperform the market. Okay, Now, by buying smarter, if you like, with different companies, different funds, here you are, you're taking market risk and you're taking manager risk. And research shows well over 70% don't manage to outperform. So to be able, because none of us have a crystal ball as to what tomorrow will bring. So you all might as well throw a coin up, up in the air of 50% and say, which way does it land? So I, I'm quite jaundiced about that space because it, it erodes your returns away because you're paying so much more. And then you have, um, which was pretty much really the ADD um, space and is a big part of progenies, what we call the systematic evidence-based investing in the middle which is you're looking at market returns, still very diversified, but you're tilting it to a certain areas which tend to outperform the main markets. So smaller companies, for example, um, there's plenty of evidence over, you know, you've got about 100 odd years worth of stock market returns to look at back and know what has happened. So smaller companies, higher risk, 
and people who invest in them want high returns. And over time, that's what you get. You'll have some who fail, some who succeed. But if you invest in that whole space, you will do better than the main stock market. So you tilt towards those areas to just outperform a little more than where you are. So quite systematic approach. Then you have the sort of what used to be called the ethical investing. And I have an issue with the word ethical because it's not. It's basically um, sort of investing with your conscience maybe, but it's about, you know, it started in the 80s where you – uh, you negatively screen, say, I don't want tobacco or I don't want armament. You narrowed your investment world down. And so typically it came at, at the expense of performance. Right? Over the last decade, a lot more money has gone into it because not only are you not just looking at negative screening, but positive screening. What are the companies that I agree with? What are the companies that are future looking? What are the companies that have more women on their boards, for example? Well, that cares for the environment. And increasingly, you're getting matrix um, to measure those. Now, we've had this ESG, sort of environment, social and governance requirements and benchmarks for, for over a decade, 22 decades. But corporates weren't held to account on them. It became a tick box exercise. Right? But now, increasingly, there is a requirement and accountability around those elements and that's what's then making a difference because as the accountability comes corporates are having to pay attention and more investors are looking at saying well if you score 56 on this do i want to be here or do i want somebody who scores 10 okay. and so there's a lot more money flowing into this space from an investor point of view because they genuinely want to do better just as consumer we want to buy better we also want to invest better so I've certainly seen a trend over the last two years, particularly, where the vast majority of people, my clients, if I have a conversation with them, want to invest, not necessarily in a sort of a very strict, narrow down investment world with a sort of previous approach. But definitely, we've, we've tried to replicate a systematic evidence-based approach for what we call e-investing uh, and that is definitely popular. People say, right, I don't mind paying a little bit more for it, but we're going in the right direction. I realize it's not perfect, but I'd rather be in a slightly imperfect world than sort of carry on thinking, actually, there's nothing I can do. So, yeah, there is a big trend in that space. And I'm hopeful, I think, over the next decade, that will become the mainstream, and the mainstream will become the sort of um, – the, the the smaller amount of the, the investment world. It's um that approach is is very similar to ironically to what's happening with the fashion world. So it's, you know, what's all the things that you've stipulated, you know, would I rather vote with my wallet, as we say, um, you know, to a company that respects our values and does better and kind of you can have a more holistic picture over what you're investing in, you know. Um what on a on a kind of Last note, what would you say um, would be, if you're a creative entrepreneur, fashion business perhaps, what would be attractive to investment around that kind of area that you've said? So, um, you know, you could show your supply chain credentials, you could show growth. 
but not too much growth and not too much greed. So kind of what, what are the attractive points for investors? I think there's the first building block of, um, I suppose, um, investing in a business as a, as a private investor. The first basically is, is this a good business and has it got legs? And so do you know your business inside out? So, yes, do you know who your supply chain is? How do they work? Are you comfortable with it? Have you done due diligence? Uh, because even without, if you like, the issues around um, uh, sweat labor, issues around how things are made sustainably or not, you've still got to understand that supply chain. Now, what you've now got to do is add other questions within that due diligence to make sure you are comfortable. Because if your investors are going to ask those questions, you know it. So I think supply chain is incredibly important and, and key element of that investment piece. The second, I suppose, is, you know, what is your marketplace? Who, who are you designing and producing products for? And is there a need for that? And in the fashion world, I have to say, there is a lot out there already. So what is the gap that you're trying to fill? Right? And if it's not a gap you're trying to fill, then how are you better than what is there already? Right? And I suppose the third element, which again, because often people think about the product and get very carried away with having a fabulous product, how are you going to sell it? Now, digital makes it a lot easier in some ways, but also requires a lot of deep pockets to be able to promote and sell online because, yes, it's out there, but how are you going to stand out among all of those? So having a real strategy around a sales piece because often we've seen really good products and then it's like, well, I'm going to have an online shop and it'll just happen. No, it won't just happen. So having a real clarity around what your sales strategy is. And I think if you've got those sort of three building blocks, if you like, um, people also buy people. Right? So often when you're listening to a, an entrepreneur, you know, I've, I've sat there and listened to people where I've got, I just don't believe that. I can remember a couple of guys actually come to present a, what was a, a very sort of carbon, uh, positive carbon, uh, climate change story around growing food in underground, um, you know, the old underground uh, tunnels and things. Um, and yet, when we listened to them, they, there was there was no field that was that was actually of any meaning to them. It was just a sales blurb they put in to sell their, their investment proposition. And as soon as they walked out of the door, we were just, we looked at each other and went, do you believe that? No. So you, people do buy people, basically. And, and conversely, I would say to entrepreneurs, don't rush after money. You know, be careful as to who you get into bed with, basically. Uh, and women, we don't raise as much and we don't borrow as much to leverage our businesses. But for me, it comes back again to that number and really understanding what is it that you are, what is it you want from your business and having clarity around it because there's a lot of um, 
dialogue, a lot of um, focus at the moment on female founders, but particularly on growing female founded businesses, so leveraging them up. And what I would say is, if you look at the numbers, a small number will always leverage up, right? But we all can't do that. You're always going to have an army of small businesses that will always be small. So the question for me is, again, knowing, having clarity around the purpose, why you've set up the business and what are you looking to get out of it, and then having a plan to back that. And and also, you know, I think there's a lot of focus, particularly around like tech entrepreneurs and, and female in tech. And, you know, sometimes it's not always best to grow. And sometimes for yourself, it is better to be small. And actually something that I've thought about a lot recently is knowing when to stop yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in lots of different things. Yeah. So it's, you know, back to your point about know your number. What What is that number and, and know your tolerance around that and know what you need to get you there, whether it's personal financial wealth or whether it's um business investment and so forth and ultimately just kind of be very methodical and strategic about it yeah yeah and and that will help you know with that sort of happy in the present mode i mean one of the things i came to conclusion when i went into progeny last year um and it wasn't something i'd actually planned necessarily but i came to a point that Growing, I had a number in my mind, and then I sat back and I thought, it is actually just a number, and it's not meaningful in the sense that to take the business to the next stage and even the next stage, I'm just not motivated. I, I want, I want to be part of a team that will grow business and and what have you, but I'm not sure I want to be doing this all by myself anymore. So Didi was a nice, a beautiful size, and you know, we created a beautiful business. I just wasn't, you know, all of a sudden thought, I don't know whether this is the right way now. Mm. And yeah, good to reassess and reflect, isn't it? Really, which yeah. is I think what what a lot of us are all doing now. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much, Anna. That was really no, helpful. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jodie. For the final part of this podcast, I talked to Lottie Leaf, who is a qualified wealth planner that advises high net worth individuals on their global assets and investments, including art, real estate, wine, luxury goods, and philanthropy. Lottie is the founder of Dura Private, a private client wealth consultancy and founder of financial wellbeing platform, the Dura Society, both of which champion another kind of wealth. I just wanted to get a bit more insight into kind of your your background because obviously you still work in the financial sector and then you also have uh, the Jura Society. Um, and what do you do day to day in the wealth management or if that's what you call it, IFA well, space? I have actually moved on from London and Capital and so the office that I'm working in at the moment I'm working in private equity now right Um, so I've kind of got three prongs to what I'm doing so I've got my Jura Society which is effectively a platform to encourage conversation about money and well-being aimed at women and translating all the jargon and all of the chaos 
you know, that comes with building and managing significant levels of wealth. Then what I have got lined up for 2021 is Jura Private. So it's taking all of my experience from my background in wealth management and realizing that there was a big disconnect between all of the parties surrounding an individual. So you've got legal, you know, tax structures, you've got um uh, you know, intergenerational planning, philanthropy, uh, investment managers, and then you might have multi-portfolios across different jurisdictions as well. And so you'll have lots and lots of people trying to look after one client, but nobody is really on the client's side. So my view is to come in and do a real 360 approach, sit alongside the client once they've come through divorce and help them to navigate back to financial independence and sit with them on meetings, make uh, like help them to articulate the questions that they need and really push back on the professionals who might just be overwhelming them. So you're essentially supporting one individual through the whole process. Yeah. Effectively, yes. And so that could be anything from setting them up with a team of investment managers, setting them up with, you know, art specialists if they need to either get valuations or anything. Because once they've gone through divorce, they'll probably have a few assets that they might need to restructure. And it's really helping them to put together a good team around them and then support them through that as they're going on their journey to financial independence again. And why is it specifically around divorce? What what's, what's I think it? that um, so when you come through divorce, you're going to be emotionally quite exhausted. You're also traditionally, if you're the financially weaker party, which statistically will be a woman, um, you're unlikely to have your own team of advisors around you. So when you split from your partner, they will probably go with your partner because they have the relationship with him therefore you are really sort of on an island on your own with you know a lot of um complications once you've left your divorce lawyer's door who do you go to like yes they might have made a couple of introductions but they're not going to be priming you for what you really need to do for a strategic financial overview of your plan and if you go to a financial advisor a wealth manager it's their interest that they will be looking to sell you. It's not going to be independent. It's not going to have a full overview um, because, you know, they won't be interested in your artwork. They won't necessarily be interested in all of these other elements like your property um, because they can't wrap that into a portfolio or a product. So you get a little bit more confusion. And so I'm there to help them make sense of it all. And how typically would you say, because obviously this, um, we're talking about creative industries and creative yeah. women, um, you know, with, with this particular podcast, how would you say that women tend to um, invest or look at investment or look at money differently, perhaps, to men? I mean, when you look in you know, a lot of articles that are written now, it's, you know, people are saying women are better investors because we are more cautious. We like to research better, but I don't necessarily think that it is a, a sexual, you know, uh, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It matters on your comfort, your, your confidence and your familiarity with what you're being presented with. And I think traditionally, again, it's more, you know, males have been encouraged to go into study finance or maths or economics and these kind of more you know uh, logical um subjects so if you're coming from a creative background and i have to you know caveat with 
I studied design at uni. So I didn't come from a financial background. And it's only through working in wealth management that I realized there was this disconnect with everything that I was reading about and, and thinking, okay, but how does this translate to what I know? And that is really what my catalyst was for, for creating the Jura Society was like, okay, there must be another way. You know, I didn't know how to read charts. I learned how to read them, but it's only because I had the patience of my colleagues showing me how to do it. And so my view is that if I'm able to understand it and learn it, then other people can. It doesn't matter if you're creative. And I think it's this labeling that people assume because I don't know about it, I must be bad at it. But it's, it's just not, not the case, I promise. Um, yeah, and that's what I try and encourage people to do learn doesn't it you can only be good at something yeah. if you learn and you practice so you know well exactly um, and I don't think there's anybody out there who's really presenting it to creatives in a um you know an inviting and welcoming way you know if you go and sit in front of a wealth manager they're going to stick their charts because that's their language they're mm. not going to translate it for you you know it's all going to be very corporate it's all going to be very you know boom, boom, boom. um and that's just not it's not going to help the client to understand what questions they need to be asking so how did you transfer from design to to wealth management and how did that happen and, and what are you studying in design then because actually I think it's completely critical to what you're doing now and and why you're attracting a certain sort of you know creative person actually yeah I mean uh completely accidentally I guess um so I worked in property when I came out of uni. I studied interdisciplinary design, came out, didn't really realise you had to get a job at, at, after leaving uni. You know, I, that, that wasn't really the end goal. And we hadn't really spoken about it as well whilst at uni. No, none of your you know, tutors were sort of like, okay, so you need to translate everything that you've learned, all of your skills into something where somebody is going to pay you. Like, right, okay. And I had always worked, you know, little jobs throughout uni anyway, but I mean, you can't just keep, you know, doing that forever. Um, so, went, worked in property for three years, realized this was too transactional. I really, really thrive through building relationships with people and helping people for the long term. I then worked in a shake's office for a little bit, um, which was fascinating to say the least. And then I was approached for this role in. So it's based in Pall Mall, which I was like, okay, cool, that's great. I can go for a swim in my lunch break. And then um, it was for this really inspiring woman called Anne. And I didn't know what the hell wealth management was before I took the job, but I was really intrigued by this woman. And when I spoke to her on the phone initially, I just thought, this is somebody I want to learn from. Whatever it is, she's there. And she ended up being my mentor and a great great source of inspiration for four years um, during which time she encouraged me and pushed me a lot um, but I think it really helped that she was a woman in this industry who really really knew her shit and was open to kind of building me up to almost be a mini her which I loved and I wouldn't be where I was now if it wasn't for her so I'm incredibly grateful but it wasn't a natural transition I have to say so you very much yeah sort it out and kind of just found your own way through everything I guess yeah um, also I think something that's important about what you do is you look at wealth in a different way you know you you have your own um, hashtag should we say about what that is as well and yeah. what is that what is that different approach so it's about wellness and it's about kind of a holistic approach really isn't it yeah a hundred percent and I think that a lot of wealth managers say oh 
we we provide holistic advice. It's no, you provide the advice that's on your panel to do with your pensions and investments. It's not really a full suite of holistic looking at an individual's needs fully. And so I believe that there is a real connect between the influence that money and therefore wealth has on the way that we manage our day-to-day lives and the reflection that that has on our self-esteem, on our relationships, on our confidence levels as well. And so this is what I really encourage people to do is just understand what their abilities are to create and generate wealth for themselves, so people in the creative world, but they need to also have that underlying knowledge of how business works, of how money works, you know, about interest rates, about inflation, about compound interest, all of these little phrases that if you're coming from a creative background is going to be like, whoa, what is this rocket science? But it's not. As as soon as somebody explains it to you properly, it totally will click and fall into place. And so I think that's really important. Yeah, um, I think it just takes time as well. You know, you, you naturally think the most when you're in a creative venture or creative business you know your IP as it were is about that creativity and that idea but actually you need certain structures in place to enable you to realize that idea and you know finance is that (laughs) is the realization and and one one example that I uh, that's been in the news recently and I find fascinating is um music artists so for instance uh Taylor Swift I don't know if you've seen what's been happening with her, but all to do with her IP and her catalogue. And so that was bought out by um, some private equity guys. And it's, it's really fascinating to see where the control of assets come once the creator has created it. And it's about retaining that. Um, so anybody who hasn't seen that, look into it, because it is really, really interesting about how the power and the control and therefore the money can easily be stripped from you after you've created something. So it's getting a good legal team behind you and understanding it doesn't take anything away from your creativity, but it's just knowing who you need to go to to protect yourself. And I think that's what a lot of wealth is to do with, is protecting yourself and providing yourself with security, whether or not you're creative. Mm. There's been actually quite a few cases in the fashion industry of a similar thing where people have had to buy back their name or step away from it or retain control and so forth. Um, Yeah, I think it's really interesting about trading on your name as well, the whole... Yeah, well, Jo Malone had that, didn't she, when she sold out to S.A. Lauder. Um, Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, are you seeing, from from your point of view, appetite for more um, investment in creative fields and things that are perhaps even sustainably focused? So, um, any ventures that are sustainably focused, or those who have like um, a different ESG rating, or kind of is that appetite growing for that? Oh, a hundred percent. And I've seen a lot of um, you know reports now saying that actually women are championing. This, this shift towards impact investment and a lot of the major investment houses are now creating ESG-focused portfolios, you know, whether it's to do with ethical, whether it's to do with climate change. And I think that the more awareness that individuals have over where their investments are going is really helping to shift that landscape for what is on offer in the marketplace. And this is fantastic to see. Um, and, and alongside that as well, you've got the whole like philanthropic arm. And I think that a lot of the initiatives that are created by um, family officers are really geared towards ESG impact and so on. 
Yeah. If you were um, able to give sort of any advice to, well, I guess business owners looking to try and find somewhere where they'd get investment from or like, I can't even say that word, philanthropic ventures, like where would you point people to, you know? Um, I think it, okay, I think there's not one stop shop for this, for a start, which makes the landscape seem even more complicated. Um, It really depends on the level of capital that you're looking to raise, whether or not you'd go for seed investment, whether it would be crowdfunding, whether you might go to venture capital or whether you're large enough to look at private equity. And these are all things that I can give you like additional information on to help you to kind of, you know, understand what the different levels are. Um, But ultimately, yeah, it depends what you're looking to achieve and the levels that you're looking to achieve. There, there isn't one. I can't give you a straight answer for where yeah. you would go. But get in touch because, you know, there's angel investor groups as well if you're looking for something slightly smaller. Hunt out people who have got a similar outlook to you as well, you know, depending on what you're trying to create because they might have a network of private investors who might be able to help you. And also what you need to be aware of is when you're raising capital, look at whether or not you will be losing rights for ownership as well. Because when you're starting out, it can be really tempting to go in and be like, okay, I need a hundred grand, but they're going to take 25% of my business. Before you've even got a proven model, do you want to be giving up that much of your freedom? Um, So look at other ways that you might be able to do it, whether it's an affordable loan or through friends and family. Um, But but yeah, there are many, many different options out there. But I think it's, it's really personal finding the right match basically isn't exactly. it? And something that you pick up on a lot around is um kind of renegotiating our relationship with with money and finance and wealth and things um actually can you just talk a little bit more about why why you've kind of matched well-being and wealth together and wellness that kind of mm. other side of it because it, it's a definitely different approach yeah, well, so when I set up the Jura Society, this was about four years ago, and um, I realized that there was a real gap between what we were offering in the office to our high net worth clients and what the people below that level were actually um, having access to. And I saw that what we provided for clients was this idea of security. It it was nothing to do with what the figures on the portfolio was. When they call you up, they're panicking because, you know, they, you know, if something wasn't working, it would impact them in their life. It it doesn't matter about what is going on within that portfolio. And so it's that psychological relationship and that real impact and um, benefit that we're providing for them. So I was like, yeah, okay, this isn't about money at all. And I think that that is that like would have um, that is what really stood out for me. And so building along that is actually how we choose to spend our money, how we have control over our money, really psychologically affects whether or not we're going to have you know control over our lives because people will label themselves again I go back to labeling but they'll say you know oh I'm bad with money oh I'm in debt oh I'm with this and and they'll get that fear and then their confidence is gone and they shut down and so I want people to actively go and have conversations with their friends with their families with their partners and think how can I make this better and not stigmatize it and it doesn't matter what end of the wealth spectrum you're at you can always be better 
um, you know, family feuds, you know, if you've got a multi-billion pound, you know, family business, they're still going to fall out. They might not have good wellness with their wealth. You know, you might have somebody on £20,000 a year, but actually they're very content with where they are in their position because they know exactly what they're allocating and what they're doing and they're living their lives as they should. So it doesn't matter what is in your money. It's about how you're managing it and ultimately then how you're managing yourself. So that is where I see that relationship and just yeah. giving people access to information um, in a relatable way, not patronising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. And you picked up on labelling then when you, you know, when you say, oh, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not capable. Um that can be very damaging you know I mean we do it in different aspects of our lives like I'm not this and I can't do that and I can't achieve certain things so we're already stopping ourselves from from kind of approaching all these different areas um just I just want to think about basically what's 2021 how do you think people will be adapting through what we've seen you know you've had probably like you've said people calling you up in a panic you know what do I do here where do I go there do you think that's going to calm down a little bit and do you think we're going to be a bit more yeah just calm generally or do you think there's still an element of panic and uncertainty there well, I think humans are innately, you know, fearful for, for good reason. And, you know, well, it, it, it's not necessarily always influenced by financial market conditions or the economic conditions. Um, if something changes, you're fearful and you want to know it's okay. And I think that that is really what professional services are, is professional parenting. And so, you know, you know you've got that, that resource to call up and go, is everything okay? Um, and to, to put it right, I, there's going to be a big shift on how people work and how people manage their money. You know, the way that we're living in our lifestyles is going to be a lot more online. Um, that will have a negative impact probably on our mental health, on the way that we um, can interact with each other as well is changing. I know that there's severe amounts of isolation and you know, especially in the creative industries where you're used to bouncing off ideas, you're in a studio, that is how you you live you know it's all it's tangible it's exciting and I think that that is a real shame um and I really hope that everybody who's in that creative industry really like you know that it will get better and I think that as people just have to be sort of hopeful and if you want it to be better and you believe that it will be better then you will have the energy to make it better um don't rely on anybody else to do that so you know if we can get everybody motivated to make things right and to you know follow the rules as much as possible um and things will be okay and there's so many support networks out there as well uh, so I am optimistic um but things will just be different yeah and I think there's you know the creative sector is inherently creative so hopefully yeah. we will you know manage some some interesting solutions out well, of that, exactly and you can't just expect them all to become you know uber drivers or you know <laughs> amazon delivery drivers you know it's like no it doesn't work like that yeah. i think people we need the creative industries um it's so important for humanity to have these new ideas and entrepreneurship and innovation because that is what drives us um mm. so yeah 
I will not let it die. <laughs> and no. I don't think a lot of people out there will allow that to happen. No, I don't think so. And it's such a huge driver of economy as well. So it's not just, um, you know, buying a physical product. It's kind of all the surrounding mm-hmm. things with it as well. Like whether that's art, whether that's eating and kind yeah. of, you know, if you think about England particularly, it's like such a creative hub and where people want to be. So, you know, you probably wouldn't have, well, they're all moving to Amsterdam now, but, um, you know, financial centers here because there's other things surrounding that isn't it that's of interest to people that want to live here or well, exactly visit exactly yeah. like the film industry you know London is one of the capitals for that because you've got such high quality you know producing and you know post-production services um yeah it's going to be cool I think there's going to be a lot of innovation coming out of this yeah. um especially yeah. in London <laughs> I hope so and I'm sure you'll be there to help them anyway yeah. <laughs> cool. alright thank you so much for your time today Lottie that's really helpful Oh, thank you thank you so much for joining us today I hope our discussions have offered some insights that you feel you can action by tackling money matters head on we can start to turn our dreams into something achievable by putting incremental steps in place towards those dreams I hope you can tune in for our second Defining Success special podcast episode that accompanies our Defining Success report. In the second podcast, we'll be exploring the less tangible subject of how to recognise and nurture creative potential with Sarah Mino. Sarah Mino is Head of Vogue Talents, Deputy Director of Vogue Italia and International Brand Ambassador at Camera Nationale della Mode Italiana and has been a curious seeker and supporter of emerging creative talent for many, many years. If you have a moment, please do take the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. We'd love to carry on the conversation online, so make sure you check us out on Instagram at otherday underscore world, online at otherday.co.uk. And if you're on Clubhouse, we do have a club and we'll be popping up there now and again. So check us out there too. As a short departing word, I just wanted to leave you with a section of a quote from Andy Warhol that um, I come back to time, time again, that makes me kind of smile, which is being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. 